welcome to the Doing Epic Stuff podcast with your host, Mike Drohan. Together, we'll explore the stories and journeys of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. We connected, realizing that maybe we were both people who would try and fight to live the lives we want to live. Whoa. Occasionally, there's a moment during a Doing Epic Stuff discussion that literally makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck, and this was one of them. A truth bomb delivered by a hyper-avid mountain biker, multi-potentialite, and recovered fibromyalgia sufferer, Anna Glowinski, when recalling the meeting of her soulmate and now husband, while she was out shredding the Spanish mountain bike trails. Little did she know at the time, he was in fact an illegal immigrant, and realizing a future together was going to test her resolve to an extent she never could have imagined. Anna's story is ultimately one of resilience. The awesome potential it has to help us navigate extremely challenging personal and professional scenarios, but also its double-edged nature. In 2017, unexpectedly overcome with intense muscular pain, Anna was bedridden and eventually given the bleak diagnosis of chronic fibromyalgia. Oh, and by the way, there's no cure for the constant pain, exhaustion, and other all-round bad feels that come along with it. Faced with this future of daily anesthetics and no bikes ever again, the outlook was really bleak for our protagonist until a legend of the dirt shredding fraternity reached out via Instagram. Helping to embark Anna upon an unexpected journey of self-realization, which literally, after the best part of a year bedridden, had her surfing again within the span of two weeks. Double woe. How did Anna make this miraculous physical recovery, unassisted by traditional Western medicine. Just how great is the role of our minds in the recovery of our bodies? And how could this affect how you or I approach our well-being now and in the future? Join Anna and I as we explore the critical role of context in safely pushing our limits, the power of the mind, and how to tune into the language of our bodies and a whole lot more on this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. Yeah, ever since then, I'd kind of been uh, just keeping an eye on what you're up to. I was fortunate enough to be an audience member of the Winter Watch Party that you ran uh, recently, which we can talk a little bit about that in a moment. But I thought that was really cool. I really enjoyed just being able to sit in and get a different perspective from female mountain bike riders and watch some really great content that they're producing and exciting to me is as having been a long-term mountain biker, just to see how stoked uh, all those people on that call were, like all those women, they were just so excited about riding bikes and you could see it brought so much joy to them. And, you know, if, if you're a mountain bike rider, I mean, that's what you live for. That, that is just such a, an amazing thrill and an amazing experience. And you could see that they were stoked about sharing it. And I felt like, getting another bike straight away when I was like sworn myself not to ride anymore. It made me want to pick up a bike again. So, you know, you're doing something right with that whole thing, which is, is really cool. But let's maybe start with upbringing. Anna, were you, are you an English native, would I say? Uh, yeah, I'm an English native. I was born in South London. So um, that's not near any mountains. It's not near the sea. It's just a landlocked city uh, there's some countryside around so I definitely you know my parents dragged me to the countryside a lot when I was younger it wasn't very far from the house but it definitely wasn't you know a 
I wasn't one of those kids that was brought up with the great outdoors on my doorstep. I was more brought up with buses and trains and graffiti (laughs) on my doorstep. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I get it. So maybe if you can take us through, Anna, from from how you ended up, how you started there to the point where you've ended up in Madrid. uh, Oh, not Madrid. So whereabouts in Spain are you living? Malaga. Malaga. Cool. So at the moment you're living in Malaga, you're recording awesome videos of creating trails in your backyard to go shredding with your husband, uh, living what I can only imagine a lot of English people are thinking is absolutely the paradise lifestyle. So how did you get over there and where, where did you start to end up here? How, what, what's the Anna journey? So how did I get to Malaga? This is a true love story. <laughs> it's very romantic. Cool. Um, I came here, so I was working freelance a few years back and my busy period was the summer. And in the winter, there wasn't really much going on. Um, I could do a few little bits and pieces online. Uh, Rent was really expensive in London. So I was like living in this crappy basement with no heating, with, I I was getting chest infections all the time. It was just so rubbish. So I was like, cool, I'll go to Malaga, get some cheap rent for the winter months, like out of the high season. do some riding and, and get some good weather. So I came here for a few winters in a row, just for a few months each time. So getting out of London for the winter, riding here for a little bit until the busy season and, and going back to the UK. And then whilst I was here, I met a guy and fell in love with him. <laughs> However, <laughs> what I didn't realize because my Spanish was pretty rubbish and he only spoke Spanish, was that he was actually an illegal immigrant from Chile. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's was, it was all very romantic. He was a BMXer, I'd met him at the skate park and then I was like, oh, you've got to try mountain biking and, and we'd like share sports a little bit. And it was pretty obvious that it was serious, like from day one, I don't know how or why it just was. And so I was like, well, why didn't you come back to England with me? I've got to go back for work. And he was like, no, I can't cross borders. Um, yeah, and then, and all this like weird stuff happened when I'm like, oh, so being an illegal immigrant is, is, it's pretty harsh. Like he, we went mountain biking once and then he crashed. I claim that he crashed because he was trying to show off. Like, cause he's such a good BMXer. He was like, yeah, I can ride mountain bikes. And then he crashed into a tree <laughs> and sat up and he was like, do you think it's bad? And his like shoulder was halfway down his Ooh. chest. <laughs> I was like, yep, that's broken. Come on, let's go to hospital. And he was like, no, I, I can't go to hospital. Oh, of course. And I was like, whoa, this is mad. Like you're an illegal immigrant. Like that's it's bonkers. So um, I realized quite early on that if we were going to have a future together, I, it, it was going to sort of have to come from me. And I went back to the UK, did a few months of work and then came back to Malaga in order to support him, marry him, get him residency <laughs> and, um, and made a pretty huge commitment to making sure that he could, he could live in Europe. Wow. That is, so that's how I ended up here. It wasn't really a choice. I wasn't planning on moving to Spain. Yeah, okay. But we, you know, if I wanted to be with this guy, I had no choice but to do oh, it. Oh, that's such a cool journey. I had just, yeah. I mean, there's so <laughs> many reasons something like that could derail at any point. Uh, and to see it through to the mm-hmm. point where you guys are obviously living this really awesome lifestyle together over there. Yeah, I think that's just a really lovely story. That's cool. <laughs> do, you, do your friends over, like, 
I assume your friends come and visit any opportunity they can, your English friends, to get the good weather. But yeah, for them, are they just like this? Did they think you were nuts when this all went down? Or are they just like, "Mm, this sounds like something Anna might do? (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. Like my, you know, I said to my cousin, like, oh, what do you think that I'm, you know, marrying this illegal immigrant? And she was like, to be honest, Anna, like if you told me that you'd met some, I don't know, older guy who was financially stable who was an accountant in a cocktail bar in Marbella she was like I would have been more surprised (laughs) (laughs) um however it was it was really hard like those few years of getting him legal were so hard like we ended up homeless I ended up having a bit of a physical breakdown which was caused by stress from hiding from the police from not having a roof over our heads for you know um I think my friends my friends were amazing they just supported and supported and supported to try and get me through it and I think now they look at me and they're just relieved mm. and happy that that I've got there yeah 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 I, I can imagine that they would be that that yeah the experience I mean it must have been an absolute roller coaster so <laughs> yeah. you guys gelled because you both fundamentally you just had this passion for things on two wheels is that was that kind of the common denominator I think so I th- yeah we both we both loved riding like he was laughing at my mountain bike like really badly he looked at it and he's like BC tanke BC tanke like tank bike <laughs> um uh, yeah and he just thought it was so stupid and now he's obsessed with mm. it uh, but I also think maybe without even realizing you know like that subtle language that doesn't come with words is that we connected realizing that maybe we're both people that would try and fight to live the lives that we want to live you know it's it's no easy feat coming to a foreign country or foreign continent and trying to create a life for yourself and the fact that he had that strength and that courage and that bravery to take that risk I think even though I said like I didn't really realize or understand when I first met him what that was I would say it's more that sort of personality traits that connected us um because I'll I'll also try and fight to live the life that I want to live um so I would I'd say it's probably that yeah and that that's that sort of uh personality trait uh seems to be one that crops up quite a bit in the mountain biking tribe. Like I feel that there is an over-index of people who are who tend to be willing to go the extra mile about things. And maybe it's something about that pressure testing your fear thing and having to work hard to enjoy the best parts of mountain biking. Like you're creating trails and you there's a lot of suck that can go before the thrill when you're riding bikes right like that can, a big part of it can really be sucky uh so i have kind of noticed that myself is that there tends to be like an over index of these sort of people in that particular tribe um tell me anna sort of on riffing on the biking thing so what does mountain biking mean to you like i feel like it's become it's a huge part of your life uh, I'd just like to understand a little bit better, like how you got into it and and yeah, what it, what it sort of means to you or has meant to you. And Yeah, so I've always ridden bikes and I think I came to mountain biking quite late in the day. Uh, when I was a kid, I was racing cyclocross and road and track, like it was the sport that my parents got me into. 
So two wheels has always been a huge part of my life, my upbringing, my social circle. Um, and I remember my brother when he was about 15 was getting into jumps and he was always really cool. Like he'd always invite me along with him, but I never, I don't know, for some reason it didn't really click with me back then. I think I was more, I just went along because I was like, oh wow, I'm allowed to hang out with older boys. That's cool. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I don't know. I didn't really do anything. I just hung around and tried to go for a wee in the woods without anyone noticing. <laughs> like those, those are kind of my standout memories from that time. Um, <laughs> so, but then when I was about 24, I rediscovered a love of cycling because I had, I'd stopped whilst I was at uni for a little mm. while. Um, and then I got back into it, started doing a bit of racing, doing a bit of mountain bikes of XC racing. And a journalist friend of mine managed to get me a, a full sus mountain bike. It was a white bike. And, um, and then I just suddenly discovered and realized that I was in love with the gravity side of things um, and became, just became obsessed with it. Like I was riding all the time, but just neglected more the trap in the road and looked more and more for races. I sort of got into it through racing rather than <laughs> I learned the trade by racing. Just straight then, into the competitive aspect of gravity riding. Yeah, which is weird because I'm not really that competitive, but I think it was the events that sh that gave me a path, I suppose. Like I'd look at a calendar or or you know someone would say like oh there's this event and then I'd, I'd be intrigued and want to do more of that um so I discovered the community by doing all these events and races and then it then it just became my life um and then a girl um called Rachel uh, Rachel Walker she she's a phenomenal mountain biker she moved in with my brother and then we started riding together all the time would go at weekends she'd like knock on my door at eight o'clock in the morning would go and get the train because we didn't have cars and we we're living in London out to the countryside and then it became a ritual mm. and the more I got into it the more that I don't know I can't, I can't just explain why it just you know, funnily enough actually I was just talking to my friend recently because uh, a new friend that I've made here in Spain she's really sporty and active and adventurous and I keep dragging her out mountain biking and and then she was, she's a bit like, oh, can you, can we go wakeboarding? Can we go and do this and that? And I'm a bit like, oh no, it's cause like the wind's doing this and that. And I want to mountain bike. And she's a bit like, why do we always do your sports? <laughs> <laughs> and it really made me think. And I was like, yeah, you've got a point. I don't know. I don't know why, but this is what I want to do with my weekend. And I've got goals I want to achieve. I've got dreams in my head of things that I want to feel and experience and that's always going to come first like I'm totally up for going wakeboarding if it doesn't get in the way of what I want to do with my mountain biking <laughs> why that is I don't know I don't know Can you explain uh, <laughs> Anna what gravity uh, mountain biking is because obviously I mean for the people who are listening they may or may not be particularly familiar with the different disciplines of mountain biking it might all be lumped into one bad boy and just be like this is riding a mountain bike up a mountain but yeah, if you can maybe explain what that is, that would be handy. Yeah, of course, because you interview people from all different sports. Mm -hmm. So yeah, totally get that. And um, that's really cool. Um, gravity mountain biking is, it's more following the discipline of mountain biking for how a bike will go down a hill. So it's using gravity to get you down. 
Um, this could be classed as downhill mountain biking. There are different disciplines now with enduro and trail riding, which is where you, you pedal to the top of a hill. So in downhill mountain biking, you might use a ski lift, for example, to get you to the top of a hill. Um, there's now sort of the discipline of mountain biking where it's still all about the downhill, but you use your own pedal power to get up. So you might spend a whole day out cycling and you're searching trails, but you're pedaling to them. Um, I guess jumps also play a big part in that as well, trying to get airtime um, or, or, and different features on a trail. So it's, it's, it's quite a skill-based sport. You're looking for speed and you're looking to improve your technique on, on overcoming different obstacles and features like roots or rocks or loose ground. Um, yeah. So it's more of a skill-based sport than a, say, like road cycling where it, or cross-country mountain biking where it's more about the fitness side. Got it. Hugely, like for road cycling in particular, it's almost exclusively about endurance and mindset and uh, for cross country, you've got a little bit of a mix. Maybe there's a bit, there's obstacles and things like that, but not you'd be rare that you would see a jump in a cross country race. And then you move to yeah. the gravity territory and you might be doing 10 foot plus gaps as part of the race at, on the A line and yeah. the B line, you might be able to go around it. So considering that the potential for risk and the potential for things to come unstuck are quite high in the gravity uh, side of, of cycling. Would you agree, Anna? Yes, yes, it's definitely it's definitely in the adrenaline sports category. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think a lot of the people that you interview fit into that category quite often. So it's it's about learning how to overcome risk and getting that skill base to to be able to manage manage features safely. Mm. We'll come back to, I think, the topic there, which would be interesting to chat about is fear itself, because I think that runs into a few different things. But just on the um, the mountain biking front, having lived it and loved it myself and being absolutely like besotted with it for a long period where I would just make sure life was being lived, but around whenever I rode my bike. So every weekend was the bike and working out when I was going to ride, everything was structured around that and to get enough Ks in to be able to ride a big weekend and to meet the right people to ride all the cool places. Like it is a lifestyle. It's not really just riding the bikes. You get into this thing and it becomes all consuming. Well, I think what would be interesting for people listening in to understand is what does it feel like full tilt on a gravity trail when things are going well and you're in this kind of feeling of flow that people talk about where you are riding without thinking and you're just reacting. And I think it's a similar experience you might get in martial arts when you're not thinking about who's punching you or you punching them, but you're just fighting and you're in the moment. Can you maybe talk about what it feels like to be in a bike going somewhere near the speed of a car over things which are jumps and turns and berms? What's going on in your head? What does it feel like? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's about entering that flow state. And you can find that in so many sports. Uh, you know, I'm just back from surfing this morning. And it's not, you know, what really annoys me is when people go like, oh, it's, you're just fearless and stuff like that. It's not about just switching your brain off and being fearless. It's, it's about, you get so in tune with the moment and what you're capable of and what the, what the terrain is throwing at you you just enter this hypnotic state. I think for me, it's my meditation and having done 
other types of cycling, like, you know, go back to saying road cycling, people often say that they love it because they go off into the hills and, and they get lost in their thoughts. And I'm like, for me, mountain biking is the opposite of that. I don't get lost in my thoughts. It's my moment where my thoughts shut up and you are, you can only think and see and instinctively react to what's going on right there in that moment in front of you. Mm. And it's a place where, yeah, if you did, if your mind wandered too quickly, you could, or too far, you could become unstuck very, very quickly in that sort of gravity riding, right? Yeah, and something that I've identified over the last couple of years, actually, but I've got a lot on, on, on my mind, say, like external stresses, worries about work or, you know, paying your rent or, you know, normal day to day life stresses that can often really affect my ability to mm. ride because it's like your brain is pulling itself back to the things that you need to think about, the things you need to address in real life. Um, so if I'm if I haven't like cleared stuff out of my brain, then I'm not going to be able to ride very well because you kind of need to have that clear mindset in order to ride. And I think I've only identified that in the last few years. Sometimes I'd go out and have a pretty crap ride and I'm like, why can't I do it today? And it's, I think it's because my, you know, your brain is pulling you somewhere else. Mm, it's not interesting. It's, it's it, like, it can be the ride itself can be a conduit to well being and feeling good and having a great time, but also, depending on what mindset you're in when you enter it, you might never reach that sort of flow state or that happy feeling if you're too busy, busy brain or you've got other things going on or yeah, it's kind of like, it's a bit of a yin and yang thing. And how do you tend to feel after you've gone for a good ride? Let's say you've just had a wicked ride. You've ridden for a couple of hours. You've done something, you've challenged yourself a little bit. What does the afterglow feel like? I know exactly what it is. I just want more. <laughs> I just want more. And it's, it's so annoying. Like my, once I've had a good ride, instead of just like going back content, like, cool, that was good. Like my brain is like, when can I do this again? <laughs> like, damn it, it's dark. Or damn it, I've run out of energy because I need more of this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It is. I'm just booking the next ride in. <laughs> yeah, as you get off the bike, you're thinking about the next one. I love it. Yeah. And have you had any uh, accidents on the bike that have made you consider stopping before? No. No, I've not had accidents that made me consider stopping. I think I've known why I've crashed. I normally crash on something that's a bit silly rather than when I'm pushing myself. I'm exactly the same. I always um, stacked on stupid shit. Yeah. Just like little, yeah, things, <laughs> you just, you lose track of your thoughts on something silly and easy, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. I, but I think that's completely normal. I think that's really normal because if you're actually pushing yourself or you do something that's scaring you, like we're just saying, you have to be 100% present. And then it's quite often like after you've done that thing that you've built up and you're suddenly like all relieved and, and then you're like, you know, you want to get chat to your mate, be like, did you get that on camera or whatever? And then that, <laughs> <laughs> that's when you crash. Yeah. Um, so no, none of my crashes or broken bones have made me want to stop riding. It's They've just been a reminder that I need to pay attention. <laughs> and I, I think, I think if I had 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 bad crashes when I was doing something that I was pushing myself with, that would be a different signal. It'd be a different learning, but I try not to, I try and find that balance between pushing myself, but knowing what's in my capability within my capabilities. 
I don't like the idea and sometimes I see other riders and I've been that stage when I was a, a beginner as well that want to push themselves so much that they'll they'll find the courage to do something that's beyond their capabilities and they might get over it with sheer luck but you can stand on the sideline and watch it and you're like that should not have landed like, <laughs> yeah that is just pure courage I don't want to be that rider because I think that's when you have those crashes which put put you off for good yep yeah, absolutely. I attest to the exact same thing. You might see someone tackle a jump way too big for them or at the wrong. Yeah, just just out. So like not like pushing yourself is one thing and challenging yourself, but then taking a leap that large where you're just like, this isn't for you. And then somehow pulling it off. That's when you question the divine. I think that's when I think, is there another power up there? Because sometimes it just shouldn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I've seen that I've seen that often and actually I was in this um women's mountain bike group chat the other day and someone was talking about something that's so common in mountain biking and I'm sure in in most sort of skill or adrenaline sports which is she was saying oh I wanted to go down this really steep section that like every time I came up to it I slammed my brakes on and I couldn't do it and she, you know she came back like super frustrated and we've all been there right we've all had that feeling where you want to do something and you can't and then somebody and I think very rightfully said it's because it's beyond your skill level mm. and and this one was like no but I know that I can do it and so I chipped in and I was like yes you might be able to do it but sometimes things are beyond your skill level on a certain day mm. so going back to what I was saying about stress or you might be tired or uh, you might have been off the bike for a little while so you need to build back up to it but when you're having those huge mental blocks it's actually i'm convinced it's your body saying nah this is not for you that's really interesting this, you know, whether that's today or forever maybe you had that one too many frothies the night before you went riding and something yeah. internally is just saying i'm second guessing this for a reason dude <laughs> and yeah. that's the fine line of mountain biking i think isn't it is is trying to weigh up what you are capable of and what you should try to do and what is kind of beyond you at that time, not to say it's ever beyond you fully because people can go from never doing a jump to doing 20 foot gaps if they ride frequently enough and with the right people and all that sort of thing. So I think that's part of the addiction, right? It certainly was for me was that continual testing of your limits. Like what can you do? Where, where can I go with this thing? Yeah. Let's maybe go into 2017, uh, Anna. So you're happily riding bikes. Everything's going pretty well. Uh, you said you pretty much, you know, you haven't bailed on riding bikes due to accidents. You've always kind of ridden through it and kind of kept with it. But then you had a, you know, a bit of a major health thing around, I think it was 2017, which potentially was on track to, to derail you riding really overnight. Can you maybe talk us through uh, what happened to you there? Yeah, so it was, it started when I was driving down from the UK to southern Spain. So it's like a 20 hour journey with my car full of all my possessions to go and live with the guy that was going to become my husband um, in order to, because he, he then was homeless. So I needed to get a, <laughs> I had a place to rent and he was going to move in with me. And as I was driving down, I found out on Twitter that the company that I'd been working for had gone bankrupt owing me well in total including the next six months of contract so the six months of contract I'd just worked plus the next six months of contracts 
I lost nearly 18,000 pounds. So I was moving to Spain, to a country where I didn't speak the language with no work, with two grand in my bank to be with this guy that wasn't allowed to work either. (laughs) And I started getting some like, muscle spasms in my leg as I was driving and I was like oh this driver's really hurting my legs I, I had to keep stopping and as time went on so I got down to got down to where we were living but the, the pain spread then into an into my other leg and I was getting these muscle cramps that so started to go see physio started to get massage and it was just getting worse and then I started having hospital appointments because I was like, this is getting pretty scary now. I can't, I can't cycle. I try and go for rides and like my legs would just cramp up. It'd be like, well, it's just like cramp basically. Mm-hmm. Just, just painful cramp. So yeah, then I started having hospital tests, um, staying overnight in hospital and, and then it spread to my arms and then down to my fingers Oof. until I couldn't, I could not move my body. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't squeeze the toothpaste thing. Um, And so, you know, it was really, really, really frightening. And then having tests for so many horrible named illnesses, it it went into a really dark place. Um, And then so a few months later, after all these tests and everything, it was a diagnosis of something called fibromyalgia which basically means muscle pain and the doctors don't really know what causes it. It's very common. It affects millions of people to different levels. Um, And once you get it, you never get rid of it is what they told Mm. me. And I was like, this is just, this is just too bad. By then I, I was in a wheelchair. If I wanted to go anywhere, I'd have to sit in a wheelchair and, and my husband would wheel me around and then that you know I'd feel exhausted afterwards um and there's this like fibromyalgia charity and I called them up for some support and that just made me want to throw myself off the local high building I was like they were like yeah yeah it's really bad no you don't get better from it um some people just carry on despite the pain and some people just sit at home doing nothing because the pain is too much it depends what type of person you are and I was like well both options are rubbish because <laughs> the pain is so intense I can't do anything I can't stay at home doing nothing for the rest of my life so yeah I felt you know I really did not see any light at the end of the tunnel and um and, you know and a lot of the advice we learn acceptance learn how to live with it learn how to be at peace with it and I couldn't like just could not see a happy life being in that much pain and unable to move my body because it wasn't just it wasn't just the pain it was the double header right it's like I'm in intense pain and I can't physically do anything so it's it's yeah, yeah okay that's intense yeah and it was so rubbish like I'd wake up in the morning I'd be like right I'm this really hurts so I'll maybe take some painkillers or I won't just depending on how whatever decision I made and then I'd be like so what am I going to do today oh nothing great I'll maybe try and draw some pictures or watch some tv and then it would get to bedtime I'd be like, I don't want to fall asleep because I don't want tomorrow to come because I just have to do this mm. again um 
and and I just couldn't I don't know I couldn't accept it and so I just started looking for alternative treatments and therapies going down a sort of medical route that I've never in my life considered as doing I, I tried hypnosis I tried vitamin tablets I meditation I was like meditating twice a day for 40 minutes a day um <laughs> I mean I had nothing else to do anyway but <laughs> you know I was trying everything and then this girl on Instagram messaged me uh, a girl called Joey Goff who was 2010 world BMX race champion she's a huge idol of mine wow. machine anyway and then yeah she's so cool and then she messaged saying um my mum had it's like in the camp of chronic fatigue and ME and fibromyalgia it's all like the same group and she's like my mum had that for seven years she learned how to get better from it and she's now a therapist in helping other people get better from it give her a call so I gave her a call that evening and then she said yeah cool we can get you better from this and you know we'll have you walking uh, and like two weeks later after having a couple of sessions with her I went for I went surfing what and yeah <laughs> and it was just mental Whoa. it was just mental and so what it comes down to in a nutshell is it was what I'd experienced was basically a, a breakdown a stress breakdown but I tried to keep a positive outlook on everything I was like fine we can do this let's just keep smiling let's like let's not worry try try not to worry trying not to feel anxious and stressed about it so I was like suppressing all of that until my body was just screaming at me trying to get me to take notice and so so now I'm like this anti-positive thinking <laughs> person and it's I'm just like think negative if I ever start to feel a little bit crappy I'm just like what do I not like that's happening so this this was a physical manifestation of a psychological thing you were going through and it could be that yeah. debilitating to your day-to-day -day life. Yeah. This, my mind yeah. is blown by this. This is insane. And, yeah. and you would go to the it doctors and the doctor's like, no, no, you've got this thing going on, which people just have to deal with. And the rest of your life, you're going to be pretty much chair bound. Yep. Yep. Wow. And the official support charity and everything. And because it can't, you know, it seems it can't be cured by drugs or operations or anything like that. But it blows my mind because doctors are aware that stress causes physical illnesses. You know, it causes stomach ulcers. It causes people to get headaches. It, you know, we all know, even if you're a bit worried, you get butterflies in your tummy. Well, that's a physical. There's a chemical reaction symptom. causing that, right? Like there is a, it's, right? it's like a cortisone thing going on that's making that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Or even if you're sad like, and you need to cry, you have water come out of your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> that's physical. You know, every, all of everything we experience, actually, we fit, we experience physically. Mm. Actually, it's your body tell, you know, if, even if you're happy, you feel like, I don't know like you, your body feels all you, you feel yeah. it don't you there's I can't really explain it I, I know it sounds super hippie but you know you you feel everything your body tells you everything physically because it doesn't have words and so it was just a case of understanding what it was trying to tell me which was 
alarm bells, alarm bells, everything's really worrying and difficult. So stop pretending that everything's fine. Wow, this is <clears throat> this is really interesting. I just wonder, I mean, even just scratching the surface of this, I wonder how many of these things that sort of these health things which are affecting people at rates which are going, you know, astronomically higher in the modern society. Um, anxiety and and all sorts of other things even to the point of uh stomach upsets and and gluten being blamed and this sort of thing uh i wonder how much of them are kind of psychosomatic you know how much of it it is well we're actually just not really very good at sitting with bad shit and recognizing it and knowing how to clean out the closet a little bit yeah that is just mind-blowing to me well, the, th the therapist who got me better reckons that every illness in the world is that. And when I was working, so I was working in a radio station for a year doing, um, doing a breakfast show. And every morning we would get this like report of entertainment news, political news, science news, like everything that it was you know, very up to date um, reports on things. And I remember one thing coming through about IBM, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Which is often caused by a lot of gluten and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and Portsmouth University did a study, it really stuck in my mind, with 2,000 participants with IBS, split them down the middle, gave one half drugs, the other half they gave counselling. The half that had drugs had a 0% improvement in their illness. The, the half that had counselling... 98 percent improvement oh that's crazy i was like boom that's nuts that is crazy wow yeah I, I don't even know where to go with this whole thing it's just it's uh look i'll definitely be looking into it further i just think it's amazing i can say this from my own experiences in having worked in pretty stressful uh professional environments for the best part of 15 years i've seen a number of very senior uh, business people get struck down with really uh, like unexplained random illnesses at the top of the, these corporate ladders, just kind of having these ongoing health issues. And it would be crazy to think there's no correlation between that and these stress-filled lives that they're living. Like it, it, that's, yeah. that's surely a thing. Um, the lack of balance I think so but I'm, I do get a bit wary about preaching about it too much like I think it's fascinating but more than anything I'm just happy to have my health back mm. and if anyone wants to ask me about it or talk to me about it I'm happy to and I post something every now and again just to draw people's attention to it but like people do get funny and I can understand as well like it's super hippie isn't it and mm. I <laughs> I never I never took that route until I until I'd hit the worst state that I could possibly be in. Mm. Um, whereas now, if I get, I don't know, a, a headache or a little twitchy eyelid or something like that, I'm immediately, I go back to the more hippie, oh, what are my emotions telling mm. me? <laughs> so yeah. I, rather than thinking, rather than looking elsewhere, but I can't help it now because I've had that experience. With, with such a massive event in your life having been caused by something like that it's not surprising that you would continue to use what has worked 
What, what do you what do you yeah. think, Anna? So if we, if we have friends or family, um, kind of going through something, which may or may not be able to be cured from a psychosomatic process, but something really major in their lives, I think one of the things I struggle with is kind of trying to work out like how can we help that loved one to get through this thing? Like I can't, I, I might not be able to put this person get them back up and walking again, but, but how can I be supportive to them? Did you have any sort of feelings in terms of like from your friends and family, what worked best, what you made you feel best at that moment, or was everything just so black in your mind that it was like, anyone could have tried anything, but I wasn't getting out of this hole. Um, Oh, it's a really hard question because I, the strength of relationships that I developed even further with my friends and family that time is just like nothing will break us now like my friendships I value so highly because my friends were there when I was at my worst I wasn't fun I wasn't nice to be around I wasn't what I I imagined they wanted to be friends with me because I was like this cool outgoing person that would have adventures and actually I wasn't that person and they they still loved me <laughs> unconditionally and that's that's what love is isn't it it's the unconditional part of it and and so to realize that I've got those people in my life is so valuable to me. I never, ever want to lose it. And I'll, I'll do anything for my friendships now to make sure I don't just take them for granted. But they weren't the ones that got me better. Mm. <laughs> you know, it was some external thing that happened. Um, so it's kind of... So, yeah, love them for it, but but they didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that they couldn't actually do anything but i guess yeah the presence there and if this thing as you say like clearly was largely like a psychosomatic thing just having that presence of friendship i guess is inherently a positive thing to your mindset and something to draw down on and be able to go okay people actually really clearly give a shit about me and love me for the person that i am not the person that i thought i needed to be that's probably part of yeah. the therapy too, I would, I would imagine. So, I think so. But I think, I guess if you're asking how to help people mm. that you love, I, I would say, I think it's so instinctive when you love someone to be like, oh, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't cry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you want to protect them and be like, oh, you know, it will be fine. And that's what I would, that's where, if I was going to give any advice, I'd be, don't tell it ever, ever, ever tell anyone not to cry mm -hmm. or don't tell anyone not to worry. Mm -hmm. Tell them to worry, tell them to cry. And miraculously, 24 hours later, they're going to be feeling tons better because they've been allowed to cry and they've been allowed to worry. It's, I think of it like the, like the, the little steam engine who's got the blow off valve on the top of the, of the top of the stack. And, you know, and at some point, like that needs to be, there needs to be blow off of the pressure gets too big in the boiler, right? And we've probably all got different levels yeah. of blow off valve. <laughs> and when it gets too much, <laughs> like it needs to happen. And sometimes you probably, yeah, it's okay to go a little bit to, to cry or let that out however you can. It's, um, yeah, I think I've, yeah, I found last year when, because we were in lockdown pretty severely, not having the physical training, which I take for granted and is so much a big part of my mental well being. Like having that taken away and working a stressful job and being stuck at home was kind of that holy trinity of like, 
wow, this is most of the things that I love kind of being challenged at once. And I definitely had a dip in, in, in mental well-being last year where I was kind of like, this doesn't feel like me before this, you know? So yeah, be, being aware of these things is good and being okay with the fact that things suck, I think is good too sometimes, like embrace the dip yeah. a little bit. And not trying to like devalue that. I don't know if that's the right word, but like it's been a really hard year for pretty much everyone. And I think it can be so common for people, you know, maybe someone like yourself or people that maybe still have work to be like, oh, but at least I still have a job or at least I'm not. And then turn around and look at someone, I don't know, who's fleeing Syria in a boat in the ocean in the middle of the night and be like, well, at least I'm not that. But actually, life as you know it has been hard mm. and it's been difficult. And I think to just recognize that and allow yourself to think this is crap. Yeah, okay, it could be worse. But for you, this feels bad and that's okay. You don't need to. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, lots of people have been trying to share that messaging, haven't they? On, you know, social media and in, in the news and stuff. Like, people are struggling that's all right you're not alone yeah and, and your experience is subjective and yeah the gravity of what you're feeling doesn't have to be compared to what anyone else is happening to them or what they're feeling yeah. it's your experience yeah it's real for you and and that's yeah it's fine so tell me Anna let's go back to the um the winter watch party which I was riffing on before so why did you create this thing how did you pull it together? And maybe first and foremost, what, what was this? What was the kind of the idea behind this thing? Okay, so the last year I've been working for a charity called Cycling UK. Um, and their mission is to try and turn the UK into a cycling nation. So um, they, they have loads of strands of their work. With, lots of it is campaigning for safer streets or for more cycleways. Um, but it's also to increase diversity in cycling, make sure there's more women on bikes. In England, we've got a massive gender gap in cycling. Um, there's also ethnic diversity gap as well, where mostly white people cycle. But Cycling UK believe in cycling, not just as, as a sport, but as a way of having greener cities, healthier populations, happier populations. Yeah, there's so many social benefits to having more people on bikes and unless everyone is included in the conversations not just white males but everyone we're not going to see all the benefits that that more people cycling will bring um so that's their kind of mission and i've been working for them trying to engage the public with cycling and show how great it is so it's a really cool job. Yes, that's like the best job. <laughs> Look how cool cycling is. <laughs> I love cycling. I'm going to tell you about cycling. You're going to love it too. <laughs> best job ever. Awesome, right? <laughs> <laughs> so everything went digital. And um, so I was looking for online ways of still spreading the message where you can't have group rides or put on events and things like that. Um, so we thought winter watch party was an idea that was bandied around and what it came together as was screening of some films that showcased women on bikes so we really wanted to market it more around women and um 
having a discussion with relevant people about those films. So a bit like a film festival or a film premiere or something that you might go to. And got a series of different films and in most cases managed to get the protagonists of those films to come and speak. And so I believe the one that you went to was the mountain biking mm -hmm. one, is yep. that right? Yes, that was really cool. We showed a 15 minute film called Montabor with Manon Carpenter, who was 2015 downhill world champion. Super bad, a huge hero of mine, very humble girl in the world as she well. She seems just um, lovely. And as you said, like super humble for like, what is a downhill yeah. mountain biking beast? <laughs> I don't, I just, what I find fascinating about her cannot connect like her super sweet responsible conscientious <laughs> personality with how badass she is on her yeah bike. yeah doing one of the cool. the gnarliest sports you can do and she's like a mild-mannered yeah. pleasant person who's like super like yeah. I, I do get the connection that she's like very detail oriented you can see how she's like she tries to probably minimize, minimize wherever possible the risk of what she's doing by being super uh, routine focused and like having all these processes. I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, 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 I can, I can see that as well, actually. Um, and then she was accompanied with Emily Horridge, who's a mountain bike guide and she makes YouTube videos, like really cool how-to YouTube videos. She's a great rider. Mm. Um, and they did this multi-day adventure up a 3000 meter mountain and back mm. um self-supported so that was that was all filmed and then we had a chat with those two about it and then following that we showed a 20 minute film called becoming ruby which was filmed by patagonia so if you've ever seen any patagonia films they're always beautiful mm. they're always really soulful and art artfully shot um, and it followed this black girl in north america called brooklyn who was talking about her experience as being pretty much the only non-white face in her mountain biking community and how she had to create a role model for herself because she couldn't see anyone who looked like her to, to, to try and emulate. You know, she, she has fluffy Afro hair, she has brown skin um, and all she could see was blonde girls <laughs> mountain biking in, in all the marketing. And she was like, well, where do I fit into this? Um, and she's an incredibly talented artist. So she drew this imaginary person called Ruby that she called Ruby, who had like dreadlocks and beanie hats <laughs> and, and nose piercings and stuff. And, and that really helped her to create an image for herself that made her feel that she could be accepted into the mountain biking world. And it, it just followed her journey really. And then we had a discussion with her and Anila McKenna, who's a diversity specialist in the UK and a mountain bike guide, talking about why it's important to be aware of how to get more black or non-white people into mountain biking or into all outdoor arenas. So often, I'm still challenged on it now. People say, well, it's just riding a bike. What Biking isn't racist. Anyone can pick up a bike. But when you go a few levels deeper, especially when you when it's explained by someone who isn't white themselves um there are barriers in the way that just make it a little bit harder or a little bit maybe it won't even enter someone's consciousness to think mountain biking could be for them um until it's marketed to them yeah 
Yeah, it was definitely a an eye opener, eye opener for me. That one, like I loved the 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 becoming Ruby film. Like it was just gorgeously shot and a great story to tell. Really, really cool. Are you going to be doing more of those things? I'm stoked that you didn't tune in the next week then, because we tried to play the film and it, <laughs> it wouldn't play. <laughs> so I was doing spontaneous interviews. <sighs> Whilst the producer was frantically trying to get the film to play and we're going to have to work out how to do another date because it didn't go to plan. And actually it wasn't, it's not, it wasn't so easy to pull together because you need to get the copyrights to showing films. Um, so there was a lot that went oh, on behind the course. scenes. You can't just start playing other people's well. media on the internet. No, sure. no, you definitely cannot <laughs> do that. Um, so yeah, I think the fact that we're a charity, you know, I was able to reach out to a lot of the film distributors and explain what we were about and they gave it to us for, for free or for cheap. Um, and and we, you, like I said, there's hundreds of people that turned up and we're delighted because Chats Like UK is still quite a small charity. And you know, when you create events where people have to register, that creates a bit of a barrier. So, um, yeah, we were delighted. It's like one of our most highly attended or if not our most highly attended mm digital events so yeah we we're really really pleased to get people there for something so entertaining yeah it was it was really great it was a great like, for, me, for me to get up at six o'clock in the morning to watch it there was no regrets I was just like oh. this is a ripper <laughs> I'd do it again it was great oh, I appreciate this yeah absolutely I've told heaps of people about it um okay Anna so I'll go into the, the final section I won't take too much more of your time this is the post-fight interview questions section what are you trying to do less of at the moment, if anything? Everything. <laughs> I'm just exhausted all the time and it's too much. And I'm an idiot and I don't know how to not want to do everything all the time. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So just trying to have more balance, introduce more rest into my life, mm. not feel guilty about it not get FOMO um, I love so many things it's really hard to know when to stop <laughs> yeah I get it yeah. I totally get it yeah. uh, what are you trying to get better at is there anything you're you're focusing on improving at the moment anything mountain biking yeah, yeah. anything specifically <laughs> you're trying to get bigger jumps or anything um, like that yeah, I want to do bigger jumps. I want to pop more, go higher. Mm. I want to get tabletop flattened out. I want to learn tire grabs. There's this berm to berm jump that I'm trying to get dialed at the moment. Mm. I want to get faster. Um, I'm quite pleased. I'm quite pleased if I watch back videos with sort of my style, the flow that I've got, but like keeping that style and flow on, on harder and bigger features. I'd, I just want to get better at mountain biking. I don't know why. I don't even do any races. I even did races when I was learning. <laughs> now that I've got quite good at it, I don't race. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but I want to get better at mountain biking. And um, I, I want to get better at everything that I do still. Like so I want to get better at surfing. I want to get better at art. So There's lots of human potential to explore for Anna, I think. <laughs> yeah. And... Do you have a, a daily routine at the moment? And if you do, what does it kind of consist of? Or is it pretty ad hoc? It's very ad hoc. Um, 
I write a plan every night before I go to bed oh, cool. for the next day. Um, so what do, and this is something I learned um, when I was recovering from the fibromyalgia. So to try and create a bit of a balanced plan for the next day that includes a little bit of everything that you need to fulfill yourself. So some work, some social, some exercise, learning and creativity. Um, so I try and look at my responsibilities, the things I have to do because I'm an adult <laughs> and the things I want to do. And, and the thing that I'm really learning is then looking at the list and being like, so what's realistic? Yeah, yeah. And taking some things out of that list. And uh, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I won't take up any more of your time. Did you have anything else you wanted to promote or say or do? Um. Yeah, why don't I promote the fact that when I am cutting down my hours, I'm bringing back out my cycle clothing brand. Cool. So I'll be focusing on that, which is called Anna's Legs. Okay. Um, and I also just want to apologise. I don't. I always do it with Australian accents, so I start emulating it a little <laughs> bit when someone's speaking to me in Australian. So I'm really sorry if I've ended up like twanging some of my words a little bit. No, no, it's good. I just somehow end up trying to copy you. The Australian audience <laughs> will appreciate it. <laughs> You'll only, you, you don't have the full-blown nasal Australian sound, so, you know, nothing nothing can emulate that, but you, no, I don't think you're going to have any problems. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> uh, lovely chatting with you, Anna. It was absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doing Epic Stuff podcast. For the latest Doing Epic Stuff happenings, you can join our newsletter on mailchimp.doingepicstuff.com forward slash subscribe. And for direct inquiries, catch me on mike at doingepicstuff.com. We out.